This Intelligence Squared podcast is supported by Audible.com, a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, non-fiction, and periodicals. The Intelligence Squared audience now has the chance to try Audible by downloading an audiobook free. One title you may wish to consider is Just Kids by Patti Smith. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash debate. That's audiblepodcast.com slash debate. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. David and I are going to talk for about 45 minutes and then I'm going to open this up for questions. I've just written a little introduction um, about David and his work. I'm sure probably everybody here in the audience is familiar with um, the highlights of it, but just in case you're not, um, so David Grossman was born in Jerusalem in 1953. His mother was born in Mandate Four. Palace. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, it's a year. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. That's... Um, Wow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) His mother was born in Mandate, Palestine, yes. Yes. His father emigrated from Poland with his widowed mother at the age of nine in the 1930s, yes. Okay, I hope I'm on firmer ground here. Um, David grew up in a neighborhood of Holocaust survivors, or those who had escaped before the war, from the lands known as Over There, and his novel See Under Love, first published in Hebrew in 1986, takes us into the mind of a sensitive young boy overhearing the adult conversations about the terrifying and possibly mythical monster, the Nazi beast. Um, David's father worked first as a bus driver, then as a librarian, and it was the gift of growing up in a library that formed David's awareness of literature and language, particularly the stories of, of the Yiddish writer Sholem Aleichem. But I know that as a child he must have read very widely because he told me of his first reading of Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse when he was so traumatised by the death of Mrs. Ramsey he ran away to weep in a nearby wadi. You told me this? You don't remember? Yeah, not... Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> In 1971, he began his mandatory national service, serving in army intelligence. He's a former child actor and child radio star. You won a quiz, am I right? Yeah, Um, about Shalom Aleichem. Yes, but they wouldn't give you the prize because you were a child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He went on to study philosophy and theatre at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and became a newsreader on Kol Yisrael, the national broadcasting service, where he once said, I, I'm on terribly, I'm sort of really, you know, thin ice here, that they managed to get through more major domestic news items in one broadcast that the Netherlands managed in a year. In 1988, he was sacked for reading out a banned news item that the Palestinian leadership had declared both its own state and Israel's right to exist. He published The Yellow Wind based on several weeks travelling through the occupied territories, talking to Palestinians and finding human stories of refugees and the displaced, little different to that of his own immigrant grandparents, 
I think this book was dismissed by politicians at the time as the fantasies of a novelist, and not long after that, the First Intifada broke out. Um, because he's been an outspoken critic of the Israeli government, readers have often been more interested in his writings of dissent, which have made him enemies amongst the Israeli right and its supporters abroad, and amongst those anti-Zionists for whom his commitment to a two-state solution and a national home for the Jewish people is a heresy. Like all great liberal voices, he occupies the nuanced middle ground rather than the megaphone rhetoric of the righteous. In 2006, David's son, Yuri, a tank commander in Lebanon, was killed in the closing hour of the war, hours of the war. At his funeral, David said, we have to guard ourselves from might and simplistic thinking, from the corruption that is in cynicism, from the pollution of the heart and the ill-treatment of humans, which are the biggest curse of those living in a disastrous region like ours. When I think of him as a novelist, what always comes to mind is the remark of one character, Avram, in his latest novel, To the End of the Land, which we're going to talk about. Avram is a prisoner of war in Egypt after the Yom Kippur War, and he observes a fellow POW crying out for jealousy for his girlfriend and feels reverence for a man who could find such dedication to his own private pain, which had nothing to do with the Egyptians and their tortures. Private pain, the nuance of feeling, the right of the individual to his or, own, his or her own intimacy and idiosyncrasy is the essence of his work. To the End of the Land is a novel literally about the land, the land of Israel. Um, Aura is running away from home because her beloved son has just been released from RV service. But with a new war breaking out, he's offered to do another 28 days of reserve duty. She's so terrified that she decides that if she runs away from home and is not there to hear the news that he has been killed in action, then it can't be delivered, and so it won't have happened. So she sets off on a hiking trip with an Ofer, Ofer, an old boyfriend from many years ago. And with Avram. Sorry? What? With, with Avram. With Avram, sorry. Yeah, yeah. With, oh, God, sorry, with Avram. I do apologize. Um, when they were both in the isolation ward of a Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv hospital during the Six-Day War, abandoned by the nurses. And it was while writing this novel that he received the news that his son Yuri had been killed. But I want to talk about the genesis of that novel. I want to talk about where that novel started in your own mind all those years ago. First of all, thank you. I'm sorry I corrected you, but... Yeah, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm <laughs> Shalom, yeah, and good evening to all of you. Uh, you know, I started my uh, career, a very American word, as a writer, uh, by writing about the, the big topics, the major topics of being an Israeli, being a Jew. I wrote about uh, the Israeli occupation in the smile of the land, and I wrote about the, the Holocaust, the Shoah in Sea and the Love. And... Then I wrote The Yellow Wind that you have mentioned, and I wrote a book about the Israeli Palestinians. And then I felt that I cannot continue writing about our situation. Uh, the situation has continued, of course, but I felt that I don't have any more new words or new formulations. Uh, 
to, uh, to revitalize this situation, to make it sharp and poignant to, to the people who will read me. Um, almost every article that I have read then, or a book, I felt as if, you know, I knew it before. There was nothing new, nothing fresh. And I myself, as I said, was unable to, to create the language to, to cope with this situation. And for some years, I, I just decided to write about other topics, other things, very private, intimate things about the jealousy of, of a husband to his wife. He becomes almost crazed with jealousy for her. Or I wrote about the, the biblical hero, Samson. Or I wrote about homeless children in Jerusalem. And in, in the same time, I wrote many articles and I did all kinds of political things. I, I was part of the team who created the Geneva Agreement, the Geneva Accord between us and the Palestinians. And yet, you know, I didn't find my way to, to, to touch this reality. And then... Uh, in 2003, when my eldest son, Jonathan, was about to, to be out of the army, to leave the army after three years of service, and uh, my second son, Uri, was about to join the army, suddenly, and I guess because of anxiety or just the need to accompany him as much as I can, because I knew that he will serve in the occupied territories, as most of Israeli soldiers. Uh, and I, I suddenly had this idea, this really unusual, strange idea, I think, for the circumstances about this mother who sends her son to the army and then she, she goes back home and, and she starts to have very strong intuition that something bad might happen to him. And then, since she realizes that it takes two for bad news, one to deliver and one to receive, she thinks, what if I am not there to receive? So all this machinery, the wheel of machinery of the notification, which is very developed in Israel, it will be taken aback, you know, delayed for a day until they find her, or a minute. In such acute moments, even a minute will do, you know. Something will, she will be able to change something in reality to prevent the, the catastrophe. And once I had this idea, I started to have the story and the language. Suddenly I knew how I want to write it. And I knew that it will allow me to do two things that I was looking for. One is to describe the general situation, which we call, in Hebrew, there is a word for it, we call it hamatzav. Hamatzav is the situation. By, by, by saying hamatzav, we encompass everything, you know, the occupation and terror and despair and, and the, the anxiety regarding having or not having a future there. All of it, we say hamatzav, and by saying that, we excuse ourselves from any nuances. And, and, you know, it's even, when you say hamatzav, it's like a divine decree. No one really created this matzav. Yeah, it, it's like, you know, it's hovering above us. 
And you know, you think that this word is such a euphemism for a constant bleeding of 100 years and more than that. But for us, it's, it's enough. So I thought it will allow me to write about Hamatzav and to, you know, to melt it into all its ingredients. But also, I wanted so much to write about the life of one family within this Hamatzav. To see what happens to a family to the relationship between the members of the family and to the members themselves and to what they are able to talk about and what they cannot dare to talk about and how all these silences grow. And not only in, in relation to the situation, but I'm fascinated, like every writer, like you are, by families. Families are really... They are so intriguing. I, I always think, you know, that the greatest moments of mankind in our history, they have not occurred on battlefield or in parliaments or in palaces, but rather in kitchens and in rooms of children, in, in bedrooms. And I try to document in, in this, this book all these small moments from which a family is created and a child is created. There is a moment in the book when Ora. Ora is the, the main character, the, the female, the mother character. And uh, she says, how many, how, how many thousands of moments of devotion and effort and goodwill and disappointments and failures are needed in order to create, to accumulate one human being in this life and later she adds one human being that is so easy to destroy. And this is what the book is about, about the creation, about the fear of destruction, which in a way is something very private and intimate that every Israeli feels, and of course myself feel, but also in a way I think it's the story of Israel because these two layers, the, the wholeness of life and the fear of death, this rare combination of two contradictory dimensions that creates the very unique, I think, Israeli vibration and vitality, this is what, what the book is about. You chose to have as your, the consciousness of this novel a mother rather than a father. What, why is this? I know you, you really like attempting to enter the mystery of the mind of a woman, the ultimate other, as we, you know, we are all the ultimate others to yeah. each other. I thought, you know, a book that tells so much about family and raising up of children, I felt it's more appropriate that it would be described through the eyes of, of a woman, of a mother. I think that I, I think it's hard to argue that the connection of the mother and the child is more primal, I think, than the connection between the father and the child. And I say it as a very motherly father. You know, I'm deeply so devotedly involved in the life of my children. But always I, I felt that it is slightly different. I know so many men who, who, who told me, 
that, you know, they said, I will start really to befriend or to be deeply connected with my child when he or she starts speaking. You know, when they accept the, the constitution of the language, which is more, you know, a masculine thing, according to Lacan, for example. And I think it's such, I mean, such a waste of, of the very first months of the child when, when he's or she is so expressive in a non-verbal way. And, and I know how, how much my life has been enriched, enhanced when I became a father. But I also felt that usually men will not run away from the news of the army. That in a way, because men are more responsible for this system of the army and system of war, and generally speaking, men throughout history, they, are, they have created or they are more a major part of all these big systems of the state, the government, army, war, than, than women. And those big systems, they reward men more than they reward women, even when they kill men. Mm -hmm. They reward them. Mm -hmm. there, there is... Uh, I once read, Borges wrote that uh, in, in the Nordic saga, the word for war is net of men, and you can almost, men with E, M-E-N, yeah, you can all, almost see, you know, a huge net thrown on a large group of men, capturing them together, and then they, they start kill each other. You know, the idea that people come to a certain point in order to kill each other. We got used to it. I mean, it's almost banal to say, but it's so monstrous to think of it. And I thought, when I thought of, you know, some of the women that I know, that they, they are, in almost every one of them, there was a kind of a slight skepticism regarding these boys' games. Now, I do not say that they are not belligerent, aggressive, violent women. I do not say, I don't want to idealize or women or to demonize men, but I find more, more frequently among women this slight, you know, look from the side, skeptical, regarding this obedience of the men with this authority of armies and, and war. And I thought it's more natural for a woman to, to run away. Now, she runs away, but it's not an escapism. She's, she's very active in her running away. First, as you have mentioned, she kidnaps Avram, the love of her youth, the love of her life. And, and in a way, Avram is a kind of a destroyed person because he was tortured by the Egyptians in the Yom Kippur War. And he doesn't want to have any contact with life. But she, very gradually and cleverly, she intrigues him. She lures him back to life. And she does it by telling him the story life of Ophir. And I think you, 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 you feel, when you read the book, you feel as if she, she deposits Ophir in the lap of Avram. And by so doing, she brings Avram back to life. She gives birth to Avram. Mm -hmm. We don't know if she will be able to save Ophir in the end. This is, I say it already now, it's an open ending, you know. But she saves, 
she saves Avram. And, and I, I got a letter from a reader, a lady who wrote me in, uh, from Brazil, and she said, maybe Ora is not a muse, you say, Musa, muse of the arts, mm-hmm. but she's definitely muse of life. And I like it this way. Um, be, before we come to the journey that she makes, there's, there's a really remarkable passage, um, very powerful detail, um, in which Aura describes how her vegetarian son has become a hardened soldier. And when he comes home from leave, she tries to find a place on his body that does not belong to the army, a demilitarized zone, a place for her hand. Uh, I remember interviewing a, um, a young Israeli soldier um, out on the West Bank, and I met him. He was about to come out of the army f- in four days, and so I met him on Schenken Street in Tel Aviv, and I didn't recognize him. And he said, I look very different without my helmet, don't I? And I said, completely different. You're not, not the same person. So I want to ask you if, you if you feel that the state has colonized the body of its people. It's not the state, I think, it's the situation. The situation. The situation, yeah. yes. When you are a soldier, you act as a soldier. Uh, when you are occupier, you act as an occupier. I, I think that, you know, if you read The Shooting an Elephant, yeah. uh, George the, the, the George Orwell story, you, you see how when you are stuck in a kind of a position, you are doomed almost, unless you are a very special individual, that, that you have the ability to re-articulate yourself in this situation. Unless you are able to do that, you, you become, you know, you, you make the movements of a soldier and you wear the uniforms and in a way it infiltrates in, into your internal organs. Yeah. And I, I describe in, in To the End of the Land another scene when Offer, the soldier, comes back from the army after three weeks being in the field, in the occupied territories, and he comes back home. And this is something I remember very vividly from myself as a soldier and from my, my sons. And he opens the door and he stands in the door and he looks at home and suddenly home seems to him to be criminally exposed. You know, it's home with the tenderness and the softness and mommy and daddy and all the little nice objects and furnitures and, ca- and carpets and he comes from such a different reality. He really comes from a catastrophe zone. He cannot really believe that such things exist. You know, as if he totally disconnected his place in the envelope of, of the country and the interiority of, of this country, the thing that he is supposed to defend. And he, he looks at his father, who almost looks castrated to him because he's so civilian, so disarmed. And and the father, who was a soldier himself, he recognizes this look, and he knows how how he he is seen by his son, and he knows that his son thinks that they are really, they don't know what life is made of, you know? Because when you are there in the catastrophe zone, you really start to believe that this is reality, that there is no other reality. Now, the tragic thing is that there is a very strong 
subcurrent in our society that believes that this is true, you know, that this is reality, you know, that the reality, for example, that you have here in London, it's not a mistake, it's an illusion. I mean, most Israelis, if you dig deep into them, will tell you, you are living in an illusion. You don't know really what life is consists of. Life is eternal war and suspicion and being on the alert and being careful from any possible trap. Exactly as it is for you here to think about being in war again, it seems totally imaginary, far-fetched. You cannot really see yourself now here in, 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 in Britain. I mean, not by sending your troops to Iraq or Afghanistan, but here it seems impossible. Exactly it is the other way around for, for Israelis who really believe that it's a kind of a divine decree. And, okay. I, w- I want to talk about this, this extraordinary journey that, it, that they make to the end of the land. Yeah. Um, so the landscape they pass through seen through their eyes, it's not innocent, but it's littered with monuments to fallen soldiers and a topography with both Jewish and Arab history. And I understand you made this hike across Israel yourself. Part of what this novel is about is about the anxiety and fear that what is coming is the the end of the land, the land being the land of Israel, the Zionist dream, the Zionist experiment, that the country itself may be coming to an end. So can you talk about the hike, and can you talk about what the land represents in this novel? Uh, First, I I walked, yes, from the end of the land, which is the the border between Mm -hmm. us and Lebanon. I did it in 2004, and this was one of the, the sweetest rewards of writing this, this book. Um, just being alone in nature and uh, suddenly realizing, you know, how much all these labels we put on this soil, on this earth, you know, Zion, uh, the land of Israel, the promised land, Palestine, all the names that we people stick to, to nature, sometimes they really expose you know, our deep need to, to have a place, yes, but we are so temporary and we should be so more modest regarding this place and just recognizing how terrible it is that we are wasting our life in this endless war instead of allowing us some normal, bearable, good life by solving the problems that we have with our neighbors, problems that can be solved yet, maybe not for a long time, but, but can, right now there, there's still some window of opportunity. And I, I walked alone mo- most of the time. I was warned by everyone that it might be dangerous. I never faced any danger from any human, only from animals. There was a, a, a bunch of stray dogs that became wild and they, they were quite threatening towards me or some uh, boars, wild pigs or snakes and scorpions which are very frequent in Israel but never from a human. Every, every person that I met 
everyone, you know, they were so hospitable and friendly and open. And I, I also, before uh, taking to the hike, I, I thought I, I want to ask every person that I, that I meet, I want to ask him or her two questions. So I, I thought, you know, instead of having just a small talk, which can be very pleasant, but I, I felt I want to, to learn something from people. And I asked them two questions. What do you regret in your life and what do you long for in your life? There was a couple who told me that they are very simple life and they can, uh, very simple questions and they can really ruin your life if you think deeply <laughs> of them. And what amazed me was the immediacy with which people responded as if they just had this answer prepared for someone to come and to ask them that. And, and I, I put most of the answers, uh, I put, uh, ma- many of them I put in, in the book. By the way, there was one uh, monk in one of the monasteries, I will not say where, in the north of Israel. And, uh, and, he, uh, and he started to tell me about a nun who came from, I think, uh, Dominican Republic, and uh, he says that she knows nothing about the basis of the belief and he has to teach her and they walk out in the fields and he teaches her and she wouldn't listen and she just wanted to sing all kind of songs and the more he spoke about her it became very apparent that he's in love with her and, and before the book was published I traveled all the way to the north to get his uh, permission to publish what he said without names, without uh, identifying details and he was no more in the monastery. He was sent away from the monastery. <laughs> um, moving slightly away from, well, moving away from literature, um, for a period of time, you were physically going to demonstrations. You were going to protests and were arrested and beaten up. Yes, every Friday? Yeah, in... Uh... I mean, beaten up is a little too far. I mean, once I was beaten, so it's yeah. not, it was not a, a custom of the Israeli police to beat me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but every Friday, uh, there was, until a month ago, when it stopped, uh, for a year and a half, we had a demonstration against the taking over of the settlers in, uh, of the neighborhood, the, the Palestinian neighborhood in East Jerusalem of Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, and... Uh, it was, you know, I thought it was a very good thing that it happened, that we had this weekly demonstration. But sometimes to go there and to see the same, what, 200 people, the usual suspects, yes, they are there every Friday in every weather, but rarely we manage to gather more. Yet I think it's important, you know, uh, it is important, I, I, it reminds me of a story that once some years ago there was this demonstrator during the, the Vietnam War who demonstrated weekly in front of the White House in Washington and once a journalist came and asked him, do you really believe that you will be able to change the world? And he answered, no, but I just make sure that the world will not change me. And, and I think this is the point of, of standing there and also to show that there is another way there is another way to converse with our neighbors. 
uh, and, and that there is an alternative, you know, that there is this alternative of the dialogue, not only the, the language of power, which both sides, by the way, use against each other. It's a kind of a twin trap. We are so intertwined together in this terrible logic of hatred and violence that each party, Israel and Palestinians, is acting against its own interests. It's, I mean, if it wasn't my own tragedy as an Israeli, I would have, you know, even find it fascinating. But you see how it works. You see how nations deteriorate to a way of behavior that is obviously destructive for them. They know it. And they are incapable of changing the course of events. They are, I mean, look, look at our government today. The way they are, they are paralyzed in front of all the changes in the region. Mm-hmm. The way that they are unable to do some initiative that would take us out of this deadlock or to respond in an in enthusiastic and creative way to, to some other initiatives. Yes, half-heartedly Netanyahu has agreed to join this uh, initiative of the quartet last week. He said without preconditions and immediately he said what will be the, the conditions. By the way, so did the Palestinians. So did the Palestinians. So it's, I mean, as a writer, it's paradise. You know, you can trace so many of humans' faults and the places where we are trapping ourselves as human beings, as a society, and what happens to us in terms of, you know, the idea of having future or not having future, the, 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 the place, the language occupies. I'm sorry to use this word in this context. The, the language occupies in, in, in these events, how the language that is meant to describe this reality starts to withdraw because it's too painful and does not describe reality, but rather buffer between the, the citizen of this drama and, and the reality. So that Israelis and Palestinians do not really no, especially more Israelis do not really know the costs. No, I'm not talking about money, but the, the real, the deep costs of, of this predicament. And they are unable to, to break through and to liberate themselves from it. So, uh, well, I mean, I wish I would live in a more boring place that I'll have to invent all kinds of crazy stories. Were you surprised by the sudden emergence of this huge social protest movement? Did, is, did Israelis surprise you by the extent to which they were prepared to take to the streets to demonstrate against you know, high housing costs? Yeah, I, I think like everyone, like, like the, the, the organizers of the uh, protest itself, we all were taken by surprise. I mean, I told you. It's, it was so difficult to gather people in order to demonstrate for, for you know, something that has to do with the situation. But the situation prevailed and had dominated all our life, and no one really wanted to go and to demonstrate against it. And suddenly there was this new wave of you know, young people, educated people, who are unable to, to, to sustain themselves who are helped and supported by their parents, and I know it uh, firsthand, 
and, and uh, they want to live in Israel, they want to raise up their children in Israel, they, they, they are the, the backbone of our society, you know, they, they are the people who will take the major part in, in serving in the army, and they feel this affinity to, to the ideas and the goals of Israel, and yet the country treats them with such, I mean, humiliates them. Mm. And you can see how the, the, the vigorous attitude that Israel has performed in the occupied territories eventually has infiltrated into the inner organs of us as, as a society. Uh, and, uh, you know, in all these, I can say now months, because it's now almost three months of this protest, the organizers and all the people who support this uh, uh, movement, they do not talk about the conflict. The conflict is being put aside. Now, you know my, my, my ideas and yet, my opinions, and yet I tell you, I find it to be a good thing. Because Israel needs, desperately, after 44 years of being stuck in this internal split which evolved into suspicion within Israel and even hatred between the different parts, tribes of Israel. Israel needs desperately to taste again the, this sweet taste of solidarity. Mm -hmm. We, in a way, we have lost our solidarity because of the political debate. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we can feel solidarity when there are wars, but this is a kind of an imposed solidarity. But right now, for some weeks, we got this privilege to remember this really mineral that every society needs, and especially society in our situation, and especially, you know, the, the solidarity and mutual responsibility are deeply, profoundly Jewish and Israeli values. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the way to, to recover also in the level of the conflict goes through this recovery of the, of the solidarity of Israel. Because those ideas of equality of every human being, of the responsibility that we bear towards the weak, the, the unprivileged, the, the sick and the poor, in the end, hopefully, this is only speculation, might infiltrate back into the other question of us and the Palestinians. One final question before I open this up to the audience. Um, when Ian McEwen writes a novel like Chesil Beach about you know, a young couple on their honeymoon in the early 1960s, he doesn't get reviews saying, why are you not writing about the Iraq war? You know, <laughs> why do you not enter the mind of you know, an innocent Iraqi who has been yeah. murdered by the British Army? Um, as an Israeli writer, and I, you know, I read the reviews in the British press, you know, there is the expectation that every novel that an Israeli novelist writes must be about the conflict, uh, number one. And if it isn't about the conflict, then it's an allegory of the conflict. Yeah. Um, and secondly, that you must have in that novel... Palestinian characters... Falling in love with a uh, Israeli right. woman. Though, yeah, of course, yeah. if you do have Palestinian characters, then that's ventriloquism, mm -hmm. and that you are colonizing, you yeah, know, yeah. occupying the mind. How could you possibly know? 
in this, this novel, there is, a, there is a, a very powerful moment in which um, Aura calls on the family Palestinian taxi driver and orders him to, to drive her boy to the front, to his, his army duty, which he does with gritted teeth and much bad grace. Um, on, and she asks him to turn off the radio, and he won't. So how, so I suppose the question is, well, two, I have two questions, really. Mm. What, one is, how do you write about the other? How do you write about the person who is the enemy, who has yeah. been um, defined as the enemy? And the second question is, we both agree that we do not like the phrase, the writer of conscience. Does the novelist, does the writer have the right to remain silent? Yeah, well, how many questions, Linda? Just two. <laughs> uh, yes, I think the writer has the right to remain silent. I think the writer, a writer has only one duty, and this is to tell a good story. I, I have no, you know, I'm not disappointed that some of my friends or colleagues who totally do not want to write about the situation. I think they miss something because it's a way to, to understand, to decode the codes of this situation. And as, as I've said just now, it's a very intriguing situation, but I can also understand the need, the thirst, you know, to, to write about some normal universal topics. Why not? Uh, you asked about writing... Uh, from the point of view of the other. I, I will just say one, one more thing regarding the first part. Uh, you know, I, I remember when my, one of my books came out in, in Italy, uh, the first interviewer there entered and, and he asked me, is the broken leg of the man in the back seat of the car, is it a metaphor for the shattered Zionist dream? Yeah, and it's a man, it's a man who is crazily jealous of his wife. And, and I, I looked at him and I, I felt, you know, I mean, how it is insulting even to, to, to pigeonhole and to reduce everything to, to politics only. Life is so much complex and multi-layered than that. And I told him, you know, even, even though we are Israelis, we have the right to be jealous for our wives. And, you know, just to be human beings. We, we are not totally confiscated by the situation. Even though writing about the situation is a way to, to reclaim, I, I will speak of myself, writing this book was a way to reclaim my individuality that the, con, that the situation in a way has confiscated, you know, to, to be able again to speak in my own language and, and to call things by private names, not the, the names that the government or the media or the army tries to, to, try to impose on me. Uh, so this is the first uh, part. And then, of course, I think part of the, the sweetness of writing, Kafka spoke about the sweet reward of writing, is the ability to, to float, you know, very flexibly between other minds and, and bodies and to be other people. You know, we, we are so protected from the radiation of other people, not only from our enemies, 
which might be understandable, although I think it's a mistake. But we are even blocked to the people who are the most close to us and the most relevant to us. And maybe because they are so close to us and they expose us in a way, or let's say we do not want really to be exposed to, to their strong inner radiation, we block parts of ourselves. You can see it in, in, among you know, married couples. Not here, of course. In London, you are really perfect. But in Jerusalem, sometimes... I... And, and they are a wonderful couple, and they, they function brilliantly as a family, as parents, and they love each other. And yet you see the places where they have congealed in front of each other. To the extent that they do not really know each other. In, you know, the, 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 the biblical word to know a woman uh, from the Bible... And Adam knew his wife Eve. I have, I have a friend who says that maybe he knew her, but he never really understood her. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, we sometimes think that, you know, when we make love, we really know the other, yes? But it's not like that, because in these sweet moments, we, we push away from our mind the places where our partner is... is tormented or tormenting or unbearable. We just don't want to remember that. So it means that even in the most intimate moments, we do not really know the other. But when, when I write about someone who is totally different from me, I have this really privilege to, to, to know what does it mean to be another human being. How is it like? What, what does it mean to be you? To, to, to feel this filament that goes in you. What is that? And it's not easily uh, achieved because I feel that I myself, I'm afraid of it. You know, it, it takes time. This is why I like writing novels because it allows you to, to have this couplehood with the book and, and you change the book and the book changes you. And gradually, you know, you peel layer after layer of this cataract from your soul until you are really exposed to the other you are writing about. And suddenly it is there, and suddenly you can be, with capital B, you can be this other, and, and to see how he or she experiences life, and how he has his special language. You know, I think all of us, even if we are not aware of that, Every one of us has a special language, some words that he or she prefers and idioms and the way we structure the sentences and the, the, the tonus, yes, the, the voltage of, of our language. And sometimes, of course, you meet people who totally do not have this private language. It's rare, by the way. And this is so despairing to, to see people who are just you know, quoting language. And... To, to be able to document it, it's, I, I think this is the, the, you know, the drug that pushes us you know, to sit for three, four, five years without really any satisfaction. And to have this place, this bubble of the story, and maybe another thing that is one of these incentives of becoming a writer is the, the, the really gift of doing or dealing with relevant 
materials. Because so much of our life is dictated by irrelevancies, by irrelevant people whom we shall not even invite for coffee. And they have the power to, to doom us to life or to death. And by all kinds of arbitrary events and coincidences. And when you write, you deal really with relevant things. And even in the beginning, when I start writing a book, I'm not really sure why, why do I write this story. I am intrigued by it. But I don't, do not necessarily understand why this specific character sticks to me. Yes, why it in a way insists that I will look at her direction. And then gradually when I write and write, and then I see to what extent I am her and she is me, even when it's the most atrocious character. But just by, by chance I was spared from becoming her. But I can now explore this untaken road, yes, this option of me that could have been me and, and not. This Intelligence Squared podcast is supported by Audible.com. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash debate. Okay, I'm going to open this up to questions from the audience. Um, we have microphones, I believe. Um, what is a question? A question <laughs> is a sentence with a question mark at the end of it. It isn't a speech. Um, and if I detect a speech, I'll just cut you off, all right? Um, so... Um, and I'm sure that most of the questions will be literary. Yeah, of course they will, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we have... Do we Can have we have a, some more light on the audience? Yeah, because yeah. I can't actually see the audience. Um, yeah, thank you. Right, Okay. If I may break Linda's rules for two seconds, can I just say what an enormous honour and privilege it is to have you here in London, what an Thank extraordinary you. book To the End of the Land is, and obviously you. all your other books as well. I promise now. Am I allowed to ask two questions if I ask yes, them really quickly? Yes, ask two questions. First yeah. is very much literary. You were very honest in the book about the fact that just as Aura, in a sense, is trying to stave off the reality and of that machinery, you also felt that perhaps by writing this book, you would protect your son and... It's unspeakable that that wasn't the case. But I wondered if you felt that literature had failed you somehow, that you lost your faith in it afterwards. And if I could be very bold and add an adjunct to that, just that if you did, it's a gift to humankind what you wrote. So in a sense, just as Aura gave birth to Avram, in a sense, you've given birth to this extraordinary testament of humanity that we should all live by, I think. Uh... Well, thank you. But the question yeah. was, did you yeah. ever lose faith in literature? Did you feel it had let you down after your son no, died? No, you know, I, it's hard for me to speak about what happened, but I, I never thought that uh, literature is uh, bulletproof, you know. Uh, there is only this wish that by writing uh, we can, in a way, re-articulate reality uh, I never really believed that I can protect him with words. It takes more than words to protect a human being or a society. Uh, it was more an act of being with him as much as I can. But, or 
not but I didn't feel that literature has failed me in a way on the contrary because you know I was writing this book for more than three years and then it happened and then I a day after the Shiva the Shiva is the seven days of lamenting that we have in Judaism I went the day after I went back writing and uh, I went back writing because, you know, after something like that happens to a person, uh, nothing is taken for granted anymore. Nothing. Everything is re-asked and examined. Even the question of staying alive, I don't think I say here something that no one can think of. And... In a strange way, the, the solid place that I had was the story that was almost finished by then. And I remember going back, and in the first day I was able to stay in, in the place where I'm writing. I was able to stay for an hour, and then I felt I can't take it anymore, and I went back home. and. The next day it was another 10 minutes and another, and I, I remember at times stopping writing and asking myself, are you nuts? I mean, all around you a world has collapsed, and you are sitting here insisting on a word or a phrase or a metaphor. But I must say that when I found the right word or the right metaphor, there was a kind of a slow relief because there was a feeling of doing something right in a world that became all wrong. A slight tikkun, we say tikkun in Hebrew, it's correction, it's the Kabbalaic term for correcting something in, in the world. And I must say that I'm not talking about the, the results of my writing, not at all, but the place of writing in my life since then became more essential. Uh, it is really a home. It is really a home. It always has been, but now it's, there is another bond, I feel, between me and, and the act of writing. And, you know the power to invent after something like that happened, the, to invent, to fantasize, to infuse life and warmth and love and humor and imagination into characters. It was a way of you know, acting against the gravity of, of grief. And in a way, it was against all temptations. It was a way of choosing life. And, yeah, that's what I can say. Um, we have, somebody has the microphone, I believe. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Um, I also have a question about the ending, um, because what, it was very surprising that you chose to put yourself in the end and the connection that is made in the end and the impact that is, you know, that falls on the reader's heart when, when, I, re when I realize that I'm reading your journey and that, it is, and that it is to some extent real. Or 
very, very, very unreal. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that choice to go to the personal, to the very, very personal, and if this is in some way what you were talking about as like a cure or like to heal the, the macrocosmos through the microcosmos of, of the private. Yeah. I hesitated a lot before putting this epilogue of one page, but the book, when it was published in Israel, it, it came out when really everybody knew about what has happened to, to my family and to me. And I thought that I just need to say it in order to, to neutralize it in a way. And to say it in very few lines in a very straightforward uh, way about what has happened and mentioning that uh, the story was written beforehand and that what has changed is only the echo chamber of reality, not the story itself. Because I decided immediately after what happened, I decided not to change the story. Uh, that the story deserves that I will remain loyal to, to the line, not to change it, not to put other things from the outside. Uh, and just in order to make that clear, I, I, I wrote this epilogue. More hands up. Hi, this is not a literary question. Ten days ago, I was at a discussion with a former Israeli minister, and he was asked why. Who who is he? I'd I'd rather not say. He he was asked why Israel finds it impossible to make any political uh, progress. And his answer, very passionately, was the political system makes it impossible. Although he had criticism for almost every politician in the country, his main criticism was of the political system itself. Uh, do you agree? And if, if, if not, what do you think is the real reason Israel finds it impossible to make political progress? Yeah. It's partly a true reason and partly an excuse. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has a very right-wing uh, coalition. Actually, it's the most extreme right-wing coalition in the West today. Uh, and we regard ourselves to be part of the West, in case you wondered. Uh, but it's an excuse. You know, a prime minister has to decide whether he prefers the future of his country or the future of his coalition. And, of course, Netanyahu makes his decision. It's very obvious what he chooses. And uh, I think this is uh, dangerous for, for our future. Uh, I believe that if he decides to act according to the interests of the future of Israel, he will have another coalition, maybe not as strong as the one he has now, which has a majority of, I think, 80 Knesset members. But there will be another you know, reshuffling of, of forces, and he will have a majority to carry out the, the inevitable steps needed in order to have peace. What worries me, and not only me, of course, is the fact that there is no status quo. You know, 
maybe he wants to gain more year or more two years until the next elections, which, what's the point of these elections if what only he wishes for is to stay in the same situation? But while he is gaining a year or two, he is losing Israel, losing the society in Israel, because the more we do not have a political solution, the more people turn towards extremism, fundamentalism, nationalism, racism. It's inevitable. Inevitable. It happens in every society in our situation. People are looking for answers, for comfort, for their despair and their frustration and their anxiety regarding the future. And there are parties who provide them with simple, very clear-cut answers which, has, which have nothing to do with the complexity of the situation and the nuances of this situation. Uh, and since there is no status quo, what we shall get after some more years of this deep freeze of action on behalf of the government, we shall get an Israel that will be unable to turn towards peace even when peace will be at reach. Benjamin Netanyahu, after you know, for, formatting the mind of the people with his enormous rhetoric abilities, convincing them for decades now, not only in his position as a prime minister, but even before that, convincing them that there is no partner, that we are doomed to fight, that all our future we shall be in this situation. If time comes and he will be forced, maybe by the Americans, maybe by events, to change his attitudes, he will not be able to do it. He will not have constituency to, to, to support him. And what happens to our society and this growing despair and this detachment from the events and the feeling that nothing can be changed, this is so much more destructive for Israel. This is one of the main reasons to, to, to achieve peace. We need peace. And when I say peace, you know, I don't have this naive dream of us and the Palestinians walking hand in hand towards the sunset. It will not be like that. Let me tell you right now, if there is peace, it means that a heavy compromise has been done by us and by the Palestinians. And a heavy compromise means a lot of frustrated, vengeful and rageful fanatics and fundamentalists on both sides. And they will do everything that they can in order to assassinate this fragile peace. And I am not sure that both leaders, the Israeli and the Palestinians, who will strike this deal of peace, that they will be clever enough, courageous enough to contain these violations of the future peace with the deep need to maintain it and to keep it. How shall they be able to do it? I really don't know, especially in societies that are so highly traumatized, so highly suspicious and inflammable and hateful towards each other. But these are problems to be solved later. We are still, unfortunately, not in this situation. What I'm sure that if there is no peace, if there is not resumption of, of the dialogue between us and, the, and the, the Palestinians, the situation would deteriorate rapidly. And the only chance of us, I'll talk of us, the Israelis, even though, you know, 
peace is important for both of us, and I, I deeply wish for the Palestinians to, to have peace, to know what does it mean to live your life in peace, to put all your talents and abilities and capacities that they have as a society, to put them in the building up of their nation and to be able to raise their children without the shadow of us and the shadow of the occupation and all this distortion and just, just to have normal life of dignity as, as people, as human beings, deserves to have their place in the world, to have their state, their sovereign, independent state. But as an Israeli as, and as a Jew, I know that having peace will allow us, and this is the only way that can allow us to, to have ourselves as, as a state and to have a future and to have our place that might become at last after so many years of being there in the Middle East might become the home that it should become. Israel should be our home, and yet it's nor a home, neither a shelter. It's one of the most dangerous places for, for a Jew to live. Only having peace will allow us to have it as a home, to have a sense of future and future and sequence of generations there, and being able to be integrated in a more harmonious way into you know, into reality, not to live in this high-voltage reality, to be integrated into some normality, normal political historic reality, and to have something that I, I, I like to call it solidity of existence that we never really felt because all the time our existence is so fragile, so questionable, all the time people ask about the existence of Israel. It's the only country on earth that people dare to doubt the right of Israel to exist. You know, they will not doubt the right of an atrocious country like North Korea to exist. Only when it comes to Israel, there is this slight confusion, I will say, if I want to, you know, to describe it in a positive way, regarding, you know, what is it? Is it a state? Is it a story? Because Israel is always regarded as a story, a larger-than-life story. And I'm fed up by being a larger-than-life story because I think that even an individual, but also a country, a nation that is larger than life, in a way is not rooted harmoniously, normally, into the course of life and the course of history. I want to be just another unique story of life like the, the English are or the Egyptians or the Chinese are. No more than that. No less, but no more than that. All these can be achieved only when we have peace. Only then Israel will be able to start the very long, difficult journey towards more normalization. This is why we need peace. It's not only questions of territory. It's not question of religion. It is the deep questions of our identity and the key to our survival there in, in, in the very unpredictable, dangerous, and hostile to Israel region, the, the Middle East. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I see, yes. Um, what's your biggest regret in life and what do you long for most in life? 
I guess we have time until midnight. <laughs> I try to understand these things by writing. Uh, I, actually, I, I must say, well, uh, let me not answer regarding question of longing. Uh, it's too painful. But regarding regrets, I take things as they are, as they come. And if they happened, even if I made mistakes, probably I was meant to make this specific mistake. At least it's mine. Uh, no, that's, that's my answer. Not too many regrets. What are yours? <laughs> <laughs> can you explain? Because I where, find where, it, where is the sorry. person who asked? Can you raise He's your just hand? There. Ah, yes. Okay. Thank. Can you explain the Israeli intransigence towards the settlers? Is there some secret explanation which no one outside Israel can understand? <laughs> when you say intransigence, you mean fixed position. Sorry. Fixed position. Right. Incapacity to compromise. Right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, it's easy and hard to explain. Uh, I think that, uh, in a way, when the settlements movement started, it created or revitalized in the heart of many, many Israelis this old ancient spirit of the the. the the pioneer Zionists, the beginning of the Jewish settlement in the land of Israel before the state of Israel was created. And this highly, you know, high ideologist reality and devotion and, and all those good values, uh, and people didn't notice that all these values are implemented in, in the wrong place. Uh, gradually over the years, because of this slight feeling even of inferiority in front of these idealists, most Israeli governments have agreed and approved all what settlers did. They came after them and gave the, the stamp. Now, many of the, or some of the governments did it because it suited their purposes. You know, Ariel Sharon, I think in the 70s, has already planned exactly the places where settlements would be created just in the very crucial points that will make any future withdrawal impossible or will make any future border between us and the territories, the occupied territories, impossible. So we shall have in a way to annex them. The situation is now that in spite of the fact that they are only something like three or four hundred thousand people, they, they hijacked Israel. We are all hostages of them. We are in a situation that because of this small minority, Israel is incapable of achieving peace. As I said before, the situation is more complicated. Yes, I'm talking now only about our part. We can talk at length about the part of the, of the Palestinians and their sharing the, 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 the complexity of the situation and the place where it has reached by now. Uh, but the settlers whom I regarded 
for, for years as really an existential danger to us in, in Israel, in the sense that they prevent us from achieving, from reaching the point of starting to have this normality that I spoke of uh, earlier. They are the most, the strongest uh, political lobby in Israel. Uh, you remember probably the withdrawal, the unilateral withdrawal from Gaza Strip in 2005, which was a huge trauma in Israel. They made it into a trauma because they knew that they have to burn it in the consciousness of the Israelis so that the settlements in the West Bank will never be uprooted. I have to admit that right now I have to accept the idea that any future solution between us and the Palestinians will include settlements block. There are three blocks of settlements that probably Israel does not have the ability to evacuate right now. There will be swap of land. The Palestinians will get until the last centimeter of territory that we have occupied, but I do not see any future government in Israel that will be able to evacuate the settlements. I say it sorrowfully. I think it, it will create a very dangerous and explosive situation in the future. Maybe we, we shall have to start thinking about a reality in which they will become Palestinian citizens in Palestine. Not a very preferable solution, but it's very hard to see how we solve this problem. There will be many uh, marginal and extreme settlements that will be evacuated. We are talking about something like 80,000 people that will have to be evacuated. But in a way, we have lost this battle. Yes, on, on the blocks of the settlement. In the Geneva Accord, uh, it was agreed upon by both parties, the Israel, Israel and the Palestinians, that the blocks of settlements would remain. Can, can I just follow up on that? There's a sort of growing consensus in liberal left-wing opinion in the West that the two-state solution is over and that we are moving inexorably to a one-state solution. Yeah, I, I heard this uh, idea. I deeply do not believe in this option. Uh, I think that both Israel and Palestine deserve and yearn to be in their own state, separated from each other, separated from the conflict, going back to understand their own identity, not always in terms of war and hostility and clash of identities. I cannot see how the Palestinians who for, and the Israelis who for a century now are so deeply against each other and demonizing each other, how they start to function in a productive way in one political entity. I, I mean, I would love to believe in it. I mean, it, it suits more my nature as a human being to believe that such things are possible. It's really hard for me to, to, to believe that it is possible. I look at what happens now in Belgium. Sorry, no, Belgium who lives in the heart of West Europe, who for 200 years never experienced a, a shot of a pistol, not even a gun, 
at each of the, uh, of the, the, the different uh, components, the, the flames and the balloons, and they want to split and they cannot stand each other and they want their identity. Our area, who is so explosive and violent, it's impossible. It, it is just not a real solution. It's counterproductive. Uh, no, it will not work. Uh, yeah. The Arab Spring changes the entire region uh, for the last year. And I wonder how you see uh, how it influences Israel. Maybe the Israeli summer, the tent movement was also in a way a result of it. But do you also think that Israeli, uh, the Israeli left or intellectuals or also individuals should, should reach out to the to the new, you know, all the new forces, democratic forces that come up in the surrounding countries, or is it too early to even get in touch? Yeah. First, I was deeply moved by uh, this uh, revolution of the Tahrir Square in 25th January. Uh, I mean, the government and many Israelis were terrified because it's always more comfortable to deal with one dictator who can impose his will on his people and he can, you know, provide you with what you want. Uh, I think for the long run, it's always better to deal with a democratic society. Uh, but this is the great question, which is still un unanswered and unsolved. Will Egypt become a real democracy? Or we, what we have witnessed was only one round democracy in which you throw out the old dictator regime and you reinstate a new one, which is also dictatory. You know that just last Friday there was a big demonstration in Tahrir Square because the, the people who protested in January, suddenly they, they feel betrayed because what they get now is another very cunning camouflage dictatorship by, by the army, by the people who are loyal to the army. And the army was a very strong body in Egypt. And almost every officer who ended his uh, service got some important benefits from, from the army and from the regime, and they are loyal to the regime. So it'll be very, very uh, complicated. I, I spoke with some Egyptian writers uh, that I met uh, some, some months ago, and they were euphoric. I never saw them like that. For, for example, it was the first time that they have agreed to be seen publicly with an Israeli writer, and I felt it's part of this new spirit. And I asked them worriedly, what if, you know, Islamic brother take over? What if the army in one or other uh, disguise take over? And they say, no, the people will not accept it again. The people paid so much for their democracy that they will continue fight. I wish for them that it will happen. But, I mean, I don't really know, I cannot answer you, if Egypt is prepared for what democracy really means. You know, democracy is not the ruling of the majority but it is the caring for the right of, of different minorities. This is the heart of, of democracy for me. And I wish for them that they will be able you know, to guarantee the rights of women, which I think their status in, in Arab countries is outrageous. This is part of the, the terrible position, situation of, of Arab societies and Arab countries. Will they be 
uh, protective to the rights of the non-Muslims, of homosexuals, of all the minorities. If this is the case, then really it will be a new spring, but we all have to, to wait and to see it. I agree with you that the Israeli spring, this new wave of, of demonstrations, social demonstrations, it has been inspired by what happened in, uh, in, in Arab countries. This is for sure. Young people realize that through the Facebook that they can unite and gather many people uh, and, and you know, bring them to act. Well, in that sense, from being the people of the book, we are now the people of the Facebook, but it's, it's not bad. We have time for one more question. Yes. Um, I also spent time at the Sheikh Jarrah protest last year, um, and one of the things that really struck me was how um, weak, um, emasculated, and illiberal the Israeli left is. Um, and it seems to me that the degree to which that is true uh, also reflects, um, also bodes ill for prospects for peace. Um, because you can't have a strong peace movement if you don't have a strong left wing in a society. So I wondered if you could speak about the role of the Israeli left in terms of the continuation of the conflict rather than the, the cessation of it. Israeli left uh, flourished uh, for the last time uh, in the weeks after the Camp David agreement and was assassinated with Rabin and with the wave of the terror bombs uh, within Israel and the lynch in Ramallah against two Israeli soldiers. This, in a moment, surfaced so many primal anxieties and, and terrified behavior. You could have felt how all the society entrenched like, like a fist. And, and all traumas surfaced. And you know, it is so difficult, and maybe many don't want to do, to distinguish between the real dangers that we face and the echoes of past traumas and, and past fears. This is what people like Avigdor Lieberman uh, feeds on, this inability to separate between the fears. You are talking about the Israeli society who is a terrified society, terrified paralyzed and, as I've said, unable to do what it takes to do in order to, to save itself. In such conditions, believe me, and I tried, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to turn the heart and the minds of people. You cannot talk to them about prospects to the future. You cannot really talk to them about uh, how future peace will look like or about giving trust in their enemies when bombs are exploding and even when bombs are not exploding because in the last years there is in the last two and a half years there is no almost no terror acts carried out from the West Bank. There are Qassam's missile shot from the Hamas in the south of Israel. It is just it is just impossible to do it. Now of course we all would like to believe that we can really change the world. I know our limitation. What we can do, what we must insist on, is just keeping this tunnel open between us and the Palestinians, keeping this alternative open, that there is another option for us to live in, in this region. It's hard to believe that we can 
uh, achieve more than that. I would have loved to answer you that we can you know, turn reality upside down. We cannot. Right now, we cannot. It's, it's such a fossilized society right now that the only ones who, are, who will be able to change it will, be, will come from the outside, only from out of Israel, only pressure from mainly the United States, which less and less seem interested in that. I spoke with some people from the administration of Barack Obama, who, by the way, read to the end of the land, and I wish that he got some new vision of our situation, uh, how terrible our situation is there, something that maybe cannot get through analysis of, of his diplomats. And the administration, Barack Obama now says that he is willing to mediate and to put pressure only when the two parties are mature and come to him to ask for his help to mediate. They will not come voluntarily. They don't have this function anymore. They need someone from the outside, and it can be only President Obama, to put them together in one room and metaphorically knock their heads together until they start talking. Because the, the, the final lines of the solution are very well known to every reasonable Israeli and Palestinian. Everyone knows what are the final lines of the concession of the other side except for the, the fanatic, the fundamentalist. So it, only, it is only a question of how much time we lose until then and how much blood will be shed. It is, these are the only two questions. I'm afraid we must wrap up. Um, I've been told that we have to be out of here at 8.30 sharp. Um, I'd like to thank David. Um, you will be able to hear a little bit more of him tomorrow morning, because I believe he's being interviewed on the Today program. Is that correct? Today program? Uh, or it may be for... It's not live, is it? So it's it's not be, live, yeah. So I think maybe going out later in the week, but he, uh, he will be on the Today program at some point this week. Um, I'd like to thank David for coming, and I'd like to thank the audience for its intelligent and often literary questions, um, without any speeches. Um, and um, please go and buy <laughs> To the End of the Land if you haven't already and his other work. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Ah, mm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.